agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and today I am interviewing the co-authors of the mega-study identifying successful interventions to strengthen Americans' democratic attitudes. And if you listen to The Politics Guys, you know this is something that we chat about a lot. So, There's a lot of interest here, so I'm really happy to welcome both Rob Willer, who is the professor of sociology uh, at Stanford University and the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab. Likewise, we have uh, Jan Folkler, uh, who studies political persuasion, group conflicts, and meta-science. He is a fourth-year graduate student at Stanford University as well. Rob, Jan, welcome to The Politics Guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, gentlemen, it's always wonderful to have fellow political scientists on. We oftentimes have lawyers and politicians on, but I get tired of them. So we can we get to geek out a little bit today <laughs> in a different way. So I was really excited to get to take on this interview with with you guys. Uh, so if you would each just tell me a little bit what led you, uh, and Rob, if you would uh, start uh, for us, just what led you to getting together to working on this particular study? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I think that we in the lab uh, at Stanford were very concerned about the levels of anti-democratic attitudes and support for partisan violence that we were seeing reported in political science research and and also concerned about the steadily increasing levels of affective polarization, or as we call it, partisan animosity that we've seen in the U.S. between Democrats and Republicans over the last 40, 50 years. And we wanted to take a a different approach to this. We had some ideas about ways that you could improve some of these attitudes, these democratic attitudes and partisan animosities. Uh, But we didn't have the sense that we had all the good ideas, not nearly. And so we wanted to take a different approach and see if we could craft a study where we would uh, find the best ideas that we possibly could and, and then test them as well as we could. Jan, was that the same for yourself or, or what led you to being part of the project? Yeah, like I still uh, remember the day when Rob had, uh, had invited us uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the lab to um, chat about a project idea. And I was very excited about, um, about the prospect of not just the testing a single uh, intervention, but uh, but really testing many uh, interventions at the same time. Because I always thought that like asking more than just like does one idea have an effect or not, but being able to compare the effectiveness of, of different strategies would be a really exciting and uh, <laughs> and and a new step for them. Um, for social science research, and what better topic would there be than to to strengthen democratic attitudes in order to to get that on the road? So one of the things that was exciting for me as I was reading your work, uh, but we might need to kind of let listeners in on was right. For one thing, you're you're testing twenty five different interventions. That's unique in political science to have that many things you're testing at once. 
And uh, for listeners, you know, you, you don't often hear the term mega study in a title. I mean, that sounds cool, but it's not, that, that's not often what you hear. And that's in part because your sample size is really large for this kind of study. Uh, you've got over 32,000 uh, uh, individuals in your sample. So what I would love for you guys to do, and uh, as I understand this, this might kind of uh, 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 start with you, Jan, is what, you know, get us through like what was your study, what did you do, uh, and, and kind of walk us through the study itself. Let's start there. Yeah. Um, so as we have said, like we thought that we would really want to get um, the best ideas that not only we or 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 the lab had to offer, but really people in the entire space. And the space is really big because there is an interdisciplinary science on um, uh, on how to um, reduce partisan conflict in the U.S. And there are also tons of civil society organizations who are working on these questions on the ground. So we started with this idea of crowdsourcing, trying to put out an open call for for ideas on how to strengthen American democracy. We are shifting public opinion on partisan conflict. And so in in the first step, we try to invite as many people as possible to submit their ideas. We uh, we built together a team that consists of political scientists, sociologists, psychologists, um, uh, and uh, and um, uh, people people who study management or uh, organizational behavior. Try to reach out as broadly as possible across the social sciences and with our partner from the Civic Health Project, also to uh, practitioners and uh, and activists who are um, working on these uh, on these issues on the ground. We received a total number of two hundred fifty two ideas. We were blown away by by that number, but we then also faced the challenge of how do we get these 252 <laughs> ideas down to the 25 spots that we that we had in order to uh, in order to uh, to uh, to test the most promising interventions. So we relied on the support by an advisory board of leading scholars and practitioners in the field who very generously agreed to review these these ideas for us based on these reviews we then selected the the most promising 25 interventions and then we thought that it is very important that we can accurately estimate the effects of uh, of these interventions on some of the most important outcome um variables in the field of um, democratic attitudes partisan conflict um, so we uh, had three three different targets that uh, that the designers of the interventions could focus on. That was support for undemocratic practices, which you can think of like as support for uh, actions taken by politicians from one's own party, where they are putting uh, the the benefits for their own party over democratic principles. For example. Reducing the number of polling stations in uh, in areas that typically support the other side, we had support for partisan violence, which you know you, you can think of 
straightforwardly as support for using violence in order to make political gains or rejecting the outcome of an of an election that was not in one's favor and partisan animosity so feelings of dislike for supporters of the other side um yeah and so in order to really accurately estimate the the effects of the interventions on these outcomes we wanted to have a sample that reflect the characteristics of american partisans for that we worked together with a uh, <laughs> with bovitz um uh, <laughs> a survey provider company and we wanted to assign roughly a thousand participants to uh, to each intervention which according to some uh, statistical analysis would give us uh, the <laughs> the possibility to to detect which intervention has strong effects on these outcomes which interventions has small but still significant effects uh, <laughs> on these outcomes which intervention doesn't really have an uh, have an effect that is reliably different from um, from a null effect and which effect may even have backfiring effect so now on your um your for, for your findings you found both and this is something that can be can be a little wonky and so we'll, we'll kind of walk through it a little bit found in these cases that not only were there statistically significant, meaning that this actually exists, but that they were large effects, meaning that they're that on the scale, uh, about 10 points, as a matter of fact, were moving towards less partisanship in some cases. And so you're getting both of those things at the same time, but you also did something unique in this study, which is not always done. You were actually following up with its durability, right? So you were taking a look at these in interventions and then in some ways following up with those, I think, believe it was three weeks later to see about if they were persisting. So would you, uh, uh, whoever feels a little bit more confident on this one, what were some of these interventions that uh, listeners might be interested in and what kinds of effect did they have? And, and, you know, again, since you had the opportunity to follow them up three weeks later, which were the ones that had the biggest long-term effect as well? Sure. So we found uh, the largest effects for our measure of partisan animosity, which is the way we talk about something that a lot of political scientists call affective polarization, um, basically the warmth or liking uh, between Democrats and Republicans. And uh, there we saw effects on the order of, you know, for the, the, the strongest treatments, we found effects on the order of, you know, 10 points on a 100 point scale effects on the democracy related variables that we were also very interested in, like uh, support for undemocratic practices, support for partisan violence. Those those effects were substantially smaller, something like, you know, 40, 50 percent of the effect size of the largest effects on partisan animosity. Um, and durability mirrored those effect sizes. So we found that the effects on partisan animosity, when we followed up two to three weeks later, that the interventions that had the biggest effects on partisan animosity uh, continued to have um, detectable, statistically significant effects. For the most part, the effects on anti-democratic attitudes did not uh, endure in, in the follow-up test two to three weeks later, suggesting that when you go to apply interventions like the ones that performed well for these 
for anti-democratic attitudes, you would want to have some strategy for increasing the dose or uh, repeatedly uh, treating people or something like that in order to get durable effects, if that's what you uh, what you needed in your intervention in the world. Um, but yeah, so the effects for partisan animosity were particularly promising because of the effect size and the durability. And to talk substantively a little bit about what were uh, the strategies reflected in the best performing interventions for that for that outcome. Uh, a couple different strategies stuck out. One was uh, interventions that highlighted sympathetic, relatable people uh, from the other side of the political aisle. So for Democrats, sympathetic, relatable Republicans and vice versa for Republican participants, those interventions tended to perform better. They were better at reducing people's animosity towards rival partisans just in general. And then also interventions that invoked or somehow built uh, some some sort of cross-partisan identity, most often uh, a sense of common national identity as an American or as Americans. Uh, those interventions were also among the more effective ones that we tested. Yeah. So one of the things that I think for a lot of our listeners that are, is on the top of their minds when they think about anti-democratic behaviors uh, Rob, you were earlier talking about, you know, we've seen these kinds of things for for 50 years. But I think for most people, when they hear this and think this, they're thinking things like January 6th. And they're thinking about this, you know, the, the idea of the stolen election of 16. And, and they're maybe nervous about the longevity of democracy uh, in those kinds of functions. It seems to some extent that there's some hope that we see in your findings, but maybe not all of it. In that context, what, what what was your takeaways for what you were finding with kind of some of the more recent events that we see in American politics and policy? Well, I think when we think about democratic backsliding in uh, in the U.S. in general, I think there's there's a variety of causes of it. Uh, there's the move by certain moves by certain political elites, uh, politicians, in particular Donald Trump. Um, to threaten longstanding norms of uh, democratic practice, uh, there's also institutional arrangements that may make our that make our system more or less democratic, uh, such as disproportionate representation by geography in the U.S. with respect to the Senate, the Electoral College, state legislatures, and so on. Uh, and then there's also public opinion. So public opinion plays a role here, and uh, I think Jan did a good job of highlighting that we think of a critical way in which public opinion intrudes here is in terms of how much uh, democratic backsliding voters are willing to tolerate before punishing candidates from their own party by either staying home or voting for rival candidates. This is, I think, the main way or the, the primary way in which public opinion uh, affects democratic backsliding. It, this this is my my read on it, is by um, you know essentially punishing candidates by voting them out of office or you know leading to them not winning elections if they uh, do undemocratic things like not acknowledging the results of prior elections or taking polling stations out of rival districts or something like that or you know prosecuting journalists uh, and then the and then if there is punishment of undemocratic leaders by the general public at the ballot box, this also serves a deterrent force where politicians won't be willing to do this in the, these moves in the first place because they realize they'll face electoral risks. After all, for them, the main incentive probably is to, you know, maintain power for themselves and their party. But if the read on that is that it it doesn't necessarily do that, then they'll, they'll be less likely to do these acts. They don't want to 
risk being voted out of office, risk prosecution, and so on. So the general public can serve as a critical check against this democratic backsliding. But recent research, for example, uh, a recent article by Graham and uh, Svolek that was in APSR in 2020 finds that the vast majority of American partisans are willing to tolerate anti-democratic moves by uh, their in-party candidates before they'll actually uh, vote against them, or at least report that they'll vote against them on surveys. And so that's the central concern is, you know, could that percentage be uh, decreased? Could there be more people who would be willing to vote on democratic principles? Because that would help to defend those democratic principles. But now in your study, it seems that the the biggest effects weren't in that area, but rather is what you, uh, uh, Jan, you were saying earlier, was in, in terms of partisan anim- animosity between individuals uh, and this kind of attitudinal uh, and behavioral effects. And so it was, it was more there. It was you were finding 23 or 25. So it, maybe it wasn't as much in terms of being able to combat that potentially. And that is also where you had the biggest drop-offs in, uh, in that, Rob, you were mentioning that a minute ago, in terms of its longevity. The longevity was really for this partisan uh, animosity, correct? That is, um, uh, that is correct. Like one thing that I will add is like, um, like we, like one of our takeaways from the studies, or like one of the, one of the questions that our study uh, was uniquely suited to to answer is to what ex or what is the relationship between uh, between the different outcomes that are <laughs> that we were studying, um, like uh, for example, partisan animosity and um, support for uh, undemocratic practices and support for uh, undemocratic candidates, and we found that there is a there's an obvious path from um, support for undemocratic practices to support for undemocratic candidates. So, like for for example, if voters like really care about upholding democratic principles, then uh, then then like, that would be one safeguard for like uh, reducing the likelihood that they, that they would vote for uh, undemocratic undemocratic candidates and as a consequence interventions that target support for undemocratic practices uh, also have downstream effects on support for uh, undemocratic candidates however another path that we uh, that we found in uh, in our study was that if you really reduce partisan animosity by a strong degree, like by like uh, like by the as Robert had said, the the strongest effects in our study were like around like ten points uh, on a like zero to one hundred scale on partisan animosity. Then we also saw that these interventions also had uh, uh, had smaller but still significant reducing effects on support for undemocratic candidates so like that seems to suggest that uh that that dislike for for the other side can play a role for uh for uh the success of undemocratic undemocratic candidates but you really need to uh reduce that dislike uh both significantly and sizably you know, one of the things that I found as I was reading through your study was I was a little surprised by how many of the interventions ended up being 
statistically significant, right? I, I oftentimes joke with students that we need a, a journal for non-significant results because then you know, people won't keep trying the same things over and over again. Um, so I, I was surprised by the amount that we had. And, and one of the things that occurred to me, and I was curious if this is one, something that either of you had been grappling with or maybe together had been, in, in the literature on political communication, one of the reasons we think that we have increased amounts of, you know, looking at the other side negatively, is that in contemporary communication, we continue to isolate ourselves or what was kind of classically called, you know, the echo chamber. And so we get more and more and more narrow of the views that we get in. Do you think one of the possibilities for why we see so many of your interventions work is that all of them are in some ways cutting people out of their echo chambers? In other words, could we almost do anything if we could just puncture echo chambers uh, a- a- and find that we will then not be as demonizing of somebody who has a face and a voice than in some way that I can touch. That, that was something that I just kept thinking about as I, w- I, as I was reading through your study, and I was wondering if that was something that had occurred to either of you. Yeah, I think that this is a really smart observation, especially of about the interventions that made the biggest difference on partisan animosity, uh, the, you know, the strategies that were reflected in them. In a certain sense, they, they are the exact opposite kind of content from the sort of content that you get in a, you know, a heavily, homo- a very, very homogenous echo chamber. Uh, so if you're in a really, really homogenous echo chamber, it's, you know, most of us that are politically engaged are, uh, that means you're not getting any kind of sympathetic portrayals of the out party, or at least it's very, very rare. Uh, probably depends on the makeup of your family uh, it, and where you live. But, you know, increasingly people are not getting that content. And then you also wouldn't be seeing content that invoked um, cross-cutting bases of identity, you know, identif- uh, group I- group identities. You'd be instead just getting group identities that are that are party identities or identities highly associated with party, you know, continually thrown at you. And so this content that that performed really well in our mega study, uh, it probably stuck out, you know, to people. It was probably stood in stark relief to the content they saw all the time and that likely contributed to uh, its its effectiveness. So kind of following on that vein a little bit, oftentimes listeners, one of the reasons People listen to the politics guys. Uh, it's because we purposely put people of different ideological persuasions who both are experts in their field so that they can kind of hash out on you know, either the, 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 the big news stories of that week or larger kind of items that we do here. Uh, so one of the things they will often have say, well, we do this. What else can I do? do? Would your study suggest are there actions that individuals take to attempt to maybe help themselves on that path, right? So are are there some kind of practical takeaways that listeners could say, hey, here's some things I can do that would make me less likely to demonize the other side, for example? Yeah, so I think that... Yeah, some of the some of the suggestions that might come from this research uh, for just things that people could do individually in their everyday life uh, would be to not dissolve relationships with people on on the other side of the political aisle. Uh, here, you know, I think it's really important that we sustain those acquaintanceships and, and friendships and 
you know, not not presume, not take other information sources as as evidence that those relationships can't work and 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 aren't going well. Because uh, the presence of those relationships that creates cross cutting identities, that creates exposure to to sympathetic members of the rival party, both for yourself and and for the people you're that you're interacting with. Another implication of our results is that uh, anything people can do to facilitate more accurate stereotypes of, of rival partisans can can really make a difference. So uh, probably the overarching strategy that most consistently uh, was most most represented amongst the, the the best performing interventions was something called meta perception corrections, uh, which in in less uh, jargony terms is basically correcting inaccurate, exaggerated stereotypes of the characteristics and views of people on the other side of the aisle. So Americans have uh, really, really inaccurate stereotypes of their political rivals, and or at least on average they do. And when you correct these views, then it can have um, palliative effects on people's own polarization and democracy-related attitudes. So for example, we find in other research from our lab that uh, people exaggerate the levels of support for partisan violence that are reported by their political rival rivals like uh, three, four hundred percent. And if you tell them that they say, oh, OK, I will update my perceptions and then I also will lower my own support for partisan violence. Uh, presumably some of that support was people reacting to uh, these inaccurate stereotypes. So they get the accurate information and they they level down in their own uh, their own attitudes and and. I think that one of the ways that we get these really inaccurate stereotypes is through peer influence. You know, we are interacting in relatively homogenous political social networks. We're um, engaging online, especially, you know, people that are really interested in politics are engaging online and in echo chambers. Uh, we transfer information about rival partisans peer to peer in conversations with expressions of contempt uh, and disdain. And uh, if we try uh, to to update our views in light of actual data on public opinion about the other side, public opinion data on the views of people on the other side, and and then also diffuse that information in our interactions with other people, then we can be uh, a part of the solution of, of making party stereotypes more accurate, breaking them down a bit. Uh, and yeah, again, our research suggests that's that's a good strategy for intervening on on all these problems. Yeah, I was driving home the other day. Uh, oftentimes I walk, but I was driving this day. And I like to kind of flip around to listen to different things. And I was listening. We have a particularly uh, virulent uh, uh, right-wing radio media here in Oklahoma. Uh, uh, and you know, to, to kind of listen, it's always good to kind of hear what is the definition of the other from that side, right? Uh, and what that looks like. And, and so what I can I hear you saying is, is you've got to be able to burst through that. Now, it's all well and good to have those individual uh, positions, but obviously, I mean, you got, this, this is a whole group. What's the, what's the policy takeaway from, from a study like this? What kinds of pragmatic institutional level uh, uh, changes could we make to do more than just what individuals might opt to take on their own because they happen to be a niche listener to the politics guys. Um, are we speaking specifically of government policy intervention? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So the the implications for um, for corporate policy in some ways are more obvious than for for government policy. I think for for corporate policy. Uh, you know, social media platforms could do a lot to to modify the the content that they're. 
you know, showing to people to be sure that they're not uh, catalyzing or amplifying the kind of content that we're finding is is divisive and, and perhaps even put their thumbs on the scale in favor of the kinds of content that we're finding is helpful. I think for government policy, I think it would be great to see some sort of more concerted bipartisan effort to restore faith in American elections. One of the things that we saw uh, that made a big difference, or sorry, one of the things we saw that made a difference, I should say, in um, uh, Democrats and Republicans anti-democratic attitudes was exposure to a short ad um, that featured the two gubernatorial candidates in the state of Utah for the 2020 election, uh, both endorsing the outcome of the 2020 election ahead of time and sort of saying, we don't agree on everything, but we do agree on the basic rules of the game here. We'll honor the results of this election. And this this is a, a fair and, and rational process that we're engaged in. And the video uh, was effective at increasing, um, or, or I should say decreasing, anti-democratic attitudes amongst Democrats and Republicans. And it's something that could be really easily scaled and probably would be more impactful if it was scaled. I mean, keep in mind that in this study, participants just viewed this very short video with people that they probably didn't know because they're not from Utah, that was attached to an election that had already happened. If uh, you saw this about an upcoming election with more prominent Democrats and Republicans in it, I think there's and you saw it more times. I think there's good reason to think that it could be more impactful. And that's something that could be, you know, engaged in, uh, whether it be through policy or through or outside of policy means just through concerted effort of Democrats and Republicans to to come together and uh, endorse our elections together. That that could be really impactful and and is the kind of thing that we that we really need if we're going to stabilize our democratic systems during a time when they're under threat and a lot of people are, are viewing them with great skepticism. Uh, people don't understand the uh, the longstanding norms of democratic practice in part because they've been unstated for so long. They didn't need to be stated. You didn't have to tell people like, I'm going to concede the results of this election if I lose it. That was implicit. Everybody had always seen it happen that way. So you didn't have to say so. You didn't have to surface that at some level, Democrats and Republicans are cooperating in maintaining uh, a system and following these, these longstanding norms, even as they compete uh, electorally. Um, making that clearer to Americans could make a difference right now. I know that that video is a, got a lot of attention in the media. It was just one piece of the study, but since you brought it up, so was this effectively both of the candidates just having a short video saying like, look, yes, I recognize that the winner is going to be the winner and the losers is going to be the loser. Was there more to it? Like, so what was the content? You said it was short, but what, what was the major pieces of that video? Yeah, so uh, so I think that the that the special feature of that video was that it showed both um, gubernatorial candidates um, being uh, being there together. So so it was a joint uh, announcement of uh, like the, the the willingness to accept the results of the uh, results of the of the election independent of. Who would win that um, um, that election? So, like in that sense, it was a like was a special kind of treatment of the of the type of like uh, like norm setting by political elites, and that it showed uh, members of, uh, of both parties. Um, 
uh, like we we also had another treatment that um, featured uh, an an endorsement of nonviolent democratic uh, engagement by by the party leaders. So like uh, Joe Biden for Democrats and Donald Trump for for Republicans, and that also um, reduced support for uh, for partisan violence, so like suggesting that these these different uh, interventions that are based on uh, cues from political elites can be uh, effective in terms of um, when they come from uh, come from the leaders of your own party, but also when they come from a from a bipartisan uh, 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 come from a bipartisan announcement. Yeah, I can imagine that in the sense that you have the well, I'm I'm not losing something by my guy giving up, right? He's not being weak uh, because both individuals are doing this. It's it's the norm. It's the thing that we should expect them to do. Now, I, I, you know, Rob, you're the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab, and and Jan, you are a member of the Polarization and Social Change Lab, and this work comes out of that lab. What's the broader goal of the Polarization Social Change Lab? I mean, we kind of get a bit of a sense of this, but you know, what 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 kind of other work are you doing, and you're working for, like the like the Mega Study? Sure, yeah, we're we're interested in re- research on, I would say, three different fronts primarily. So one is work like this that is that is interested in attacking the the central divide in American politics between Democrats and Republicans. So work on, you know, defending democratic principles, addressing uh, high levels of affective polarization or partisan animosity. So that's that's one front of our research. Another front of our research works on uh, a dilemma within the contemporary American left of, you know, how do you build higher levels of solidarity amongst uh, folks on the center left and and uh, progressives. And then uh, another line of our research is interested in addressing attitudinal polarization by improving our and deepening our understanding of political persuasion. So how is it that uh, you can build the sorts of consensus, the sort of, you know, super majorities of public support for legislation around things like climate change or addressing uh, economic inequality, the kinds of supermajorities that you would need in order to affect legislation in this country. Mm. Hmm. Okay, so now I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get really different. So I, I'm gonna kind of zoom out a little bit because one of the things that I was really excited about, and this might not be obvious apparent to all of our listeners, but I'd like to work through that. Is is that uh, uh, Rob? Obviously, you're you're a professor, and Jan, you are a graduate student. One of the things that bothers me personally is how terribly most of popular media uh, covers the reality of what it's like to be working in the uh, in the academy, what it's like to be a graduate student in the academy. Uh, and I love that you guys were both uh, going to be on and, and and talk about this work as co-authors. Uh, so I, I would love for you guys to have some time and some space that we could chat just a little bit about. What is it like to produce work like this? I don't think, you know, listeners don't always understand what goes in behind it. And I don't, I especially don't think they always understand, uh, Jan, you're going to talk into this one. You know, what's it like to be the graduate, you know, the graduate student working on this kinds of work? What does that really look like, right? I mean, I think for a lot of people, 
uh, they kind of just picture the Big Bang, <laughs> right? But that's nothing like what, you know, real uh, uh, scientific work looks like. So I, I would love for you guys to talk into that a little bit. And then Jan, uh, uh, especially for you to talk in a little bit about, you know, what's it like to be a graduate student? I think that's a really important conversation to have as well. Uh, so uh, uh, you, you, either one of you can start on that one. Sure. So I'll go first. I think Jan's answer will be more interesting. So I'll just go quickly uh, and say that the Polarization Social Change Lab, I'm, um, you know, the, the only faculty member that's full time in the lab. And then we have got a bunch of postdocs and, and PhD students and then also uh, research coordinators that are sort of in between their undergraduate and graduate training. And we try to take an approach philosophically of let's work on problems that we care a lot about, that we think matter. Let's try to do research that could make a difference in the world somehow, be it for, for policy or other ways of intervening or just for popular understanding of problems, because that's also a way uh, to affect things. And uh, let's, if that work is going to matter, let's do the work as well as we can. So let's set up structures for producing knowledge that produces rigorous, replicable knowledge efficiently and um, and a lot of it, frankly, you know, and so that means uh, big teams of people, um, big divisions of labor, you know, people get added to projects because they have a unique skill that they can contribute. Uh, it means not worrying a lot about uh, authorship credit, you know, and oh, no, I'm third author on this paper or oh, I'm first author, but there's there's five names after me, you know, but instead just having faith in the larger collective enterprise that we're going to do work that matters. We're going to do it as well as we can. And if we do, that people are going to be really interested in, in hiring the folks from the lab or admitting them into grad programs or what have you. And so far, I think that approach has generally worked really well. Um, and it also is more meaningful, you know, it makes the work feel, you know, more significant and purposeful on a day-to-day -day basis because you're you're trying to do work that matters, trying to hold yourself to high standards. You're working with others in a, a genuinely like other-oriented, team-oriented way. And that just makes the work way more enjoyable than sort of monastic solo work. Um, you know, that said, I don't think there's any reason to fetishize large research teams. You know, if a project can be done by one person really well, do it that way. You know, like there's no need to to have co-authors just just to have it. Though I, <laughs> I, it works well for me because I get I get lonely working alone. Um, but for the kind of projects we work on, large teams tend to do the work better, faster, and and more reliably. And so, so we work in big teams, and and that's kind of the the distinguishing feature. And that also means empowering grad students and postdocs to lead big teams uh, earlier in their careers than they maybe normally would. And I, I try to to support them in that leadership, and and that's that's a huge part of my role. But again, I, I think Jan's answer will probably be more interesting than mine. So as we get to you, Jan, so one of the things that I that I hear and I want to kind of ask in is uh, the polarization and social change lab. Is that something that uh, that you created, Rob, or is this something that you got to come into and and for picking on your postdocs or picking uh, for your graduate students to be in it like Jan? Is that a singular process for you? What does that look like? And so then we can kind of get into Jan and his experience on that side. It's, yeah, it's a really good question. The I, I did create the Polarization and Social Change Lab here at Stanford. Uh, I you know our lab dates back to when I was a, a faculty member at UC Berkeley, and we even still have one staff member that we carried over from from those days, Crystal Redekop, who who co leads the lab uh, here at Stanford. Uh, it's changed names and and foci over the years a bit. Uh, as for who who we um, 
you know, who makes up the lab. We have a staff of research coordinators and we have postdocs that are collectively selected uh, from large applicant pools by, um, you know, all the primary members of the lab. Um, we also have a lot of PhD students in there. We try to be really welcoming and open and sort of say, you know, our doors, our doors open. You can attend lab meetings if you're, you're interested in our work. And then we, we see who we strike up, strike up research projects with. So there's a, it's kind of different labs have different philosophies on this. We have sort of a low barrier to entry to at least be engaging with the lab. And then, uh, and then the projects start from there. Wonderful. I appreciate that kind of background. So Jan, uh, how did you end up? Did you come in that open door and, and, and then get kind of recruited on up? What's that, what's that been like? And what's it like doing this kind of research as a graduate student? Again, I don't, not a lot of our listeners are going to know uh, you know, quite what the trials of being a graduate student are. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for that question. So yeah, like I, uh, I pretty much like walked through that, uh, open door and I think like the, the lab really provides unique opportunity for someone who is interested in these <laughs> substantive um, questions with a lot of openness for like how to how to do science uh, on this. Like I, uh, I did a master's at, at Tilburg University um, beforehand in the Netherlands, which is very strong on open science uh, uh, practices and ask a lot of questions about meta science. What is the best way to, uh, to do science? How can we gain the most knowledge in the most reliable way? And like this project was really a unique opportunity for me to like uh to like try to go as big as possible on you know how can we generate as much insight as possible uh from a from a from a single project the, the lab had had never run a mega study beforehand so we had a great general infrastructure but we also really pushed and found new uh new ways here you know like uh we we started the project i think at the end of my first year so three uh three years ago and now we're at the stage where we where we uh, have gotten the uh, the first working paper out there have been a lot of long nights a lot of emergency late night calls it has been uh so much fun to work together with a team which is like way bigger than then Rob and I, the, the uh, project has been co-led by Nick Stagnaro, uh, who's a who's a postdoc at MIT, and by James Chu, who's an uh, who's an assistant professor uh, at Columbia. Um, we've had great great support from uh, from the research coordinators, including Crystal and Sophia Pink. It, and Joe Mernick and there also two, two two other PIs on the project in Jamie Drachman and Dave Rand. And as you know, I like so my role as like trying to bring all of these different brilliant minds minds together and like come up together uh, with a with a design for like how to produce knowledge that can really push the entire field forward on new research questions that are they're not just like is this intervention going to be 
and can it move the needle, but rather like bringing a lot of different interventions together at the same time and also asking like which out of these is uh, is the most promising. So like I think by having built uh, now the it's going to be really exciting where the lab takes that template next uh, to which uh, to which question how can we further uh, improve the template i very much look forward to see how people at at other universities and other labs are going to move on um mega study so yeah like there there it's a it's a really fascinating and exciting time to be a, a grad student and and the project really really allowed me to to think like way bigger than I than I ever expected to uh, to think in grad school and uh, yeah and I'm super excited to see uh, where where it will go from here but you know like for, for listeners who are excited about running uh, a mega study themselves, it is also a lot of work. So, so get ready for that. <laughs> I imagine. I'm going to ask one last selfish question for you, Jan, and that is because I, ha- you know, I have a bunch of undergraduates myself. I'm always trying to help them, but of course, I'm much further along in my career. If, if you could give uh, some undergraduates a single piece of advice to help them bridge that transition from undergraduate work into the graduate world. In other words, if you could, maybe if you could even t- tell yourself this in the past, what w- what would you tell yourself, or what would you tell that undergraduate student? Yeah, so like, I would say like uh, two uh, two things. Like one is like try to really figure out um, a path that you are excited about. Like when I first started college, I actually started like studying math. Um, and found out like pretty quickly that that there was not the uh, domain that I could see myself in long term. And switching to uh, the social sciences was like pretty challenging um, for me, like very different from what other members of my family were doing. But it has been like, the best decision of my life, I think. Um, so really going with like where you think your own interests and passions are uh, is. Uh, uh, is super important and then i would like try to like like uh like think think big even if that means like going uh somewhere where where it where like there's there might be some some internal (laughs) resistance like for me i struggled a lot with learning languages when i was when i was younger so like uh so knowing that like if I wanted to do research, I would have to spend quite some time improving my English um, skills. Seemed like a very long way for me. Um, back in the days, I remember when I, I talked to my first landlady in the U.S. for the first time, and she was showing me around in the kitchen, and I literally like didn't understand a single uh, a single item that she was describing in the kitchen. But like putting myself in that situation also has uh, has really uh yeah it, it enabled me to uh, to uh, move on on this path and pursue a, a true passion that i have 
Well, Rob, Jan, thank you guys both so much for sharing all of this time with the Politics Guys listeners and with me. I've really had a good time. I, I hope you've enjoyed being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. It's been, it's been great yeah. chatting with you. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Trey. Really appreciate the, the opportunity. It was a lot of fun chatting with you. Thank you. Well, good. It's always fun chatting with others and, uh, as well. Um, this is the end of our show this week. Uh, if you're not already a supporter of the Politics Guys, I hope you'll consider becoming one. Yeah, without supporters, we can't do these kinds of shows. We can't put this kind of research forward. Uh, so in addition to getting uh, a lot of fun stuff, uh, you also get free versions of everything we put out, including our ex- ex- uh, supporter-exclusive midweek show, uh, where we're going to break away from the constraints of the news cycle and do things like this, where we get to listen to interesting new researchers. Uh, supporters can join the, our very active Politics Guys Discord group. And there's even a Politics Guys gear and other benefits. You can see all of this uh, if you head to our website at politicsguys.com support. You can also check out all the benefit levels at patreon.com politicsguys. Or if you are so inclined, you can always head to Venmo at politicsguys. Uh, to do that all again, just take a look at politicsguys.com support. If you'd like to get the midweek shows, but you're not in a position to financially do so, don't forget, you can always reach out to us. We understand that. Just shoot your email to mike at politicsguys.com and we'll get you set up. Whether you're a supporter or not, we really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, or review on whatever podcast app you use and share episodes on social media. Don't forget, you can tag us. Uh, I'm at Trey Orndorf. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or anything else you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find this and everything else you might need in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Ogilby. We'll be back with a new show again this weekend. I hope you'll join us then.